So with that, as we transition uh, to, the, to the message, I'm just going to share the scripture for today. Matthew 18, 19, and 20. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning, church. So good to be with you this morning. I felt like there was some wind at our back this morning during worship. So grateful for that. Um, The Holy Spirit is with you. He loves you. Um, And I just echo that word that Pastor Luke uh, mentioned. I just believe that you're not here by accident. It's not a convenience thing. It's not just this. It has a lot of purpose. Um, So I just pray that today we put on our thinking hats, but we also open up our hearts, and then we also receive this word from God uh, with our spirit. Amen? Amen. I just want to also mention uh, we're two weeks away from Easter, and so pastoral note, um, sometimes we need uh, a personal invitation to, to come to church. And so maybe you have someone in your sphere of influence, you're just like, maybe the beauty of the resurrection needs to come into their life. And so I just want to encourage, be intentional. Uh, Maybe just a quick little text message and invite them to this special day where we can honor God together. Sound good? Awesome. Well, I want to start off today by telling you a true story about um, a woman named Monica. Monica was a single mother, and she had one child, a son, and she was a devoted believer. She sang hymns over her child with her hand on his forehead and prayed over him nightly. But her boy grew up to see the world quite differently than his mother. As an adolescent, he became known in their North African town as a womanizer (laughs) and was often seen publicly drunk at untold hours of the night. He, however, had an extraordinary intellect and eventually grew up to become a philosopher channeling all of his energy, combating his mother's Christian faith. Monica didn't give up. She continued to pray nightly for her son's salvation. And just just as she had done when, when he was a little boy with her hand on his tiny forehead when she was a young mother. When he was 19, Monica had a dream. And she sensed from this dream that God was promising her to answer all of her prayers about her son. In response to this dream, she she grew more fiery and intense uh, towards her prayers and towards God with her prayers. A year passed, and then another, and then another, but there was no change. No moment of hope, no change of heart or openness to belief. Nine years after this dream, he had plans to travel to Rome, known for its revelry and debauchery. And Monica stayed up all night. When she heard this news, she stayed up all night in intense prayer, pleading with God to prevent his travels. She didn't want to lose her son. But but little did she know, while she was praying that night, he had switched his plans, fast-forwarded his plans, and decided to sail for Rome that very night as she prayed. On that trip, sitting alone one afternoon in a Roman garden, Monica's son heard the audible voice of God speaking to him. Bewildered, he opened the very scripture he 
dedicated himself to despising and disproving. And right there, then and there, he surrendered his life to Jesus. Monica, Monica's son's name was Augustine and went on to be widely considered as one of the greatest theologians the world has ever seen and the father of the early church. I've said this before and I'll say it again. There's something powerful about a praying mother. There's something powerful about a praying father. There's something powerful about a praying family. There's something powerful about a praying church. There's something powerful about a praying generation. Prayer releases power. Walter Wink, a Texan and theologian, confidently exclaims, history belongs to the intercessors, those who believe and pray the future into being. And check this out. This is the main thrust of what I want to talk about today. I believe that it's the long, I've been praying, and I believe it's the longing of the, heart, of the Father's heart to have a multitude of Monicas, so to speak, for us to pray together with this heart. In the book of Acts, um, the book of Acts has 28 chapters. And in this book, written by Luke, the author, the idea and the, and the report of, of, this, of the Christians praying together was mentioned over 20 times. In 28 cha- chapters, like, it's like one, every, one and a half chapter, we're talking about praying together. And so Luke can't get away from pointing out the centrality of praying together as the church. This is, this is center to the expansion of the church and the expansion of the gospel. And so when we pray together, when we intercede together, the power of prayer is multiplied. The power of prayer is multiplied. And so this is what I want to talk about today. You guys with me? The power of praying together. Let's pray together. (laughs) Lord, we love you. We glorify you. We realize that You are God and I am not. And thank you for that orientation. There's peace with that. I pray, Lord, that you mark this day out with your Holy Spirit, with Jesus, with the Father's heart, that it will be marked out with love, supernatural unity, and even spiritual deliverance. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. When we pray together, the power of prayer is amplified. I don't know how you respond to that language, but I believe with all my heart. But I want to propose that it might not be in the way that you think. Some of you guys, when you hear the story of Monica and Augustine, or that there's power in praying together, you're, you're inspired. You're like, I hear that something inside of me is erupting. I, I'm more energized and motivated. My faith is stirred. I want to pray more. But I think there's also many of us maybe in this room that are also maybe confused by stories like this, maybe confused by ideas like this, maybe even angered when you confront, when you're confronted with stories like this. Maybe you're like, I'm truly happy for Augustine and his mom. I truly am. But why did God take so long? Or why are you saying that praying together is amplified? Is there some kind of divine equation with just the right combination of time spent praying and number of people praying that finally gets 
God motivated to answer our prayers? I know that I've asked those questions myself. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about a mathematical notion of prayer in which people wrongly believe certain circumstances surrounding prayer, like length of time, number of repetitions, or efforts on the people, on, on the people who are praying, the efforts that they're, they're exuding, will make the prayers, make those prayers more secure to secure God's blessing. And I know I've made those errors at times as well. But when I think that God answers prayers based on a mathematical notion or some divine equation, so to speak, I'm actually operating from a diminished view of the Father's love. How many of you guys know that God is in love with you? He's in love with you. He's radically and relentlessly in love with you. Look at the cross. We don't need a magic formula. Neither, that, that, that just couldn't, that's just like, there's nothing further from the truth. <laughs> that's not the way that the Father works. That's not congruent with his good character, his true character as a father. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, Psalm 103. He is the giver of all good gifts, James 1. He is attentive to the cry of the weak and the forgotten, Psalm 34. He is eager to grant what his children ask, Luke 11. And I can go on and on. Throughout the scripture, God repeatedly declares himself as full of compassion, full of love, and attentiveness to all who call on him. God is not looking. He's not looking for a mathematical notion. He's looking for love. He's looking for unity. He's looking for partnership in his rescue plan for the world. Let's jump into Matthew 18 here, our key text for today. So it'll be on the screen, but feel free to get it out on your phones. We're gonna kind of unpack some of this stuff in here. This passage in Matthew 18 is a promise of our Lord Jesus. He's promising something here. And the primary context in this passage, and this whole section really, is about church discipline and healing from sin. But there's a secondary application that I think uh, is really profound. That's about prayer and praying together. It's really profound. So Matthew 18, verse 19, starts off with this. This is Jesus speaking. Again, truly I tell you, so this is like a little idiom that Jesus uses from time to time. It's like, an, it's an expression. Truly, I tell you, it's like this expression. He's really trying to drive the point home. He's like, honestly, listen to this, listen to this. If two, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, in context, this is not prosperity gospel. This is not like, okay, guys, let's agree together for the new jet or something, <laughs> or whatever the case may be, right? He's talking about healing from the messiness of relationship and sin. Verse 20, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. There I am with them. Jesus is saying he's, he's with us in the mess of relationships. He's with us in the mess of sin. <laughs> this is our Lord. He doesn't leave us in disgust. <laughs> oh man, you guys are so messy. 
Like, y'all are just like sinful, messy people. I'm, I'm going to go take care of these people who aren't as messy. I'm going to buy. You know, like that's not his heart at all. He's like, no, I'm with you in the middle of it. This is his promise. When there's hurt, when there's ache, when there's misunderstanding and abuse, he's saying, I'm with you in the mess, bringing my peace and my presence and my mercy and my healing. Praying together in agreement becomes the landing pad for the healing presence of Jesus. Jesus is, uh, he's not an idealist. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's line in Life Together. Check this out. He who loves the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. So he who loves the idea, the idealized vision and dream of the church more than the church that he or she is a part of becomes a destroyer of the latter. Jesus's vision of the church is not utopian, right? There's a lot of that going on in the world right now. Come be a part of this utopian society or this utopian church. Our church is perfect. There's no such thing. <laughs> Jesus's vision of life together as the church, who's still with, with a people in it who still have sin in their DNA is grounded in reality. In the heart of Jesus, he is, he is fiercely pro-church, <laughs> fiercely pro-church, but he is anti-idealism. Because where there is idealism, there isn't love. In Matthew 18, we're just actually one chapter away from his teaching on marriage and divorce in Matthew 19. And if you read it, you'll notice that this is all one stream of thought for Jesus. He's talking about, essentially, there's a, the, the main theme. This is the cause or the culprit for so much breakdown on a relational level. Because we, so when we marry somebody, when we marry a woman or a man, we marry, we don't really actually marry the man or the woman. We marry an idea. We marry an ideal. We fall in love with an archetype. So Carl Jung would, would call it like a masculine archetype or a feminine archetype or like our vision of what we should be married to, right? And that's all well and good, but there's also a lot of narcissism in that. We're just trying to like transpose our vision of what we want onto that other person and you should be that. And then we're surprised when it's not. <laughs> and same goes for the church. Same goes for, for the community of Christ. You know, a few months into the marriage or a few years into the marriage or the relationship or into the church community, you like wake up and you realize like, wow, this is not what I thought, right? Like your breath is stanky. Like you just wake up and just like, whoa, right? And that happens, she's saying that to me, by the way, my wife's saying that to me. But we, I think that happens in the church as well. And it's at this point where we have an opportunity. Jesus is inviting us into something here. We have an opportunity to move from narcissism into love. So what Jesus is, is teaching us in Matthew 18 is praying together becomes a vehicle for this transformation into love. And it's from this place of love that then reverberates into reconciliation and unity. The power of prayer begins to be amplified. I want to show you this uh, graphic. 
that I made last night. Such a graphic nerd. <laughs> so, pray together. And so when we pray together, as I have talked about, we, we move from, from idealism and even maybe from the other side of like cynicism and, and like skepticism. And we, we center in the reality of love. And so love is, is, starts to flourish and it's nurtured in this place. Um, and then this, this love then gives birth to unity. And then this union from love, this union then begins to deliver renewal. And start, we start to engage in warfare. And on the outside, you'll see that it reverberates into renewal. God wants to bring down the substance and the reality of heaven on earth. He can do it on his own, but he is relational by essence, and he has called us to be image bearers. His icons and his image bearers, his family. He wants to allow his presence to dwell in us, and then we partner with him to bring about this renewal. You can also call it revival. You can call it healing for the planet. Uh, you can call it Edenizing, bringing things back to before the fall and all of the potential before sin and death entered in. But before, well, as on our way, let's put it that way, on our way, as we enter into renewal, we have to engage warfare. How many of you guys know that we have an enemy, right? I think of that movie, what is it? Um, Usual Suspects, right? The greatest trick of the devil is to make the world believe that he doesn't exist. No, there is an enemy. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I think that one of the, the core strategies of the enemy is to normalize division. It's just normal. Just, I'm done. I'm done, right? Like, it's just like a colloquialism. I'm done. Just move on and separate and divide. It's just normal everywhere. Whether it's over our unfulfilled vision of ideals, as I'm talking about, like archetypes and stuff like that, our own vision, whether it's, you know, simply dividing over opinions or preferences or offenses or politics, oh my gosh, or even minor doctrine, suffering over gender or age or ethnicity or classes or culture or sexuality, and the list goes on and on. The world is marked by division. But God has given, and let me just tell you, God has given us a secret weapon for our journey as Christ followers. The church father, Tertullian, describes praying together as a holy conspiracy. I love that. This is where we conspire against the division of the enemy and the division of the world with love and with unity and with the power of praying together. I'm gonna call Wes. We're gonna move to a close here a little bit faster, but I also wanna give us a little bit of breathing room to respond to some of these things. You know, the enemy knows that if we start praying together, in love and hope and humility, his schemes of division will be destroyed. Will Williman writes, 
By praying together, we are being made into a people whose journey is a sign to the world that God has not abandoned the world to its own devices, but is present as a people on the move, a people moving out of their own ways and means, ordinary people who have been given extraordinary authority to be a part of the divine assault upon the evil realm. When we pray together, we actively express what Jesus has done. Do you realize that? This arcs from Genesis all the way to Revelation. God has embedded something supernatural. It reverberates into eternity. I think we have these like these little images of like just cute little circles and we just, let's just pray together. Maybe marked by religion or powerlessness. It's not that. This is warfare. This calls down the reality of heaven. It transforms us. And something tectonic actually starts to happen. We start to terraform our very world. Do you believe that? God is calling us to engage in this. And and so much of warfare starts with just like, I'm just going to put down my own ideology or my own ideals. And I'm just going to love my church. And all of its blemishes. And I'm going to be self-sacrificial. Jesus does it with us. When we, ex- when we pray together, it actively expresses what Jesus has done. It, it expresses his life. It expresses his prayers. It expresses what he's done on the cross. And it expresses the new creation that's birthed with his resurrection. So through Jesus, we get to be assigned to the world marked by this love, y'all, and this unity and this holy conspiracy to bring renewal to this dying and divided world. Let your heart be stirred. I would love for us to just move into a place of ministry here. And maybe just ask the Holy Spirit to lead here. The point of this is praying together, (laughs) not sermonizing. So if you would, would you just put out your hands like this? Maybe it's an act of receiving. Allow your body to be a receptor for God's love and the presence of God. So Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. We thank you that you are the leader of the church. I'm getting the sense in my heart, it's kind of affirming a word I felt like I was getting this morning. I think there's some of us in this room that just feels too distant from ourselves to even like try to come close to God. There's like, there's your values and your lifestyle is incongruent and so it just is bringing a lot of anxiety. And so Lord, I just pray for all of us who feel that way, who might feel distant from themselves. 
I thank you, Lord, that you have died on the cross for us and that you want all of us. <laughs> you want all of the good and all of the bad. You want all of us because you have a way. And so, Lord, I just pray for all those who feel distant. I just pray you replace all that anxiety, all of that uncertainty, all of that lack of integrity with your presence right now. And I'm also getting this word. There's some of us in this, in this place who feel like, it's like, oh, I'm not, I don't even know what Christianity is or I don't even know like what this is all about. And then some of you also are like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't really know what ministry looks like. That's like, that's the pastor's job or the leadership's job. And I'm here to just like shatter that lie. You are actually called into ministry. If you follow Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, it's an invitation to participate with renewal, the renewal of all things. And so you are called into ministry. It doesn't look like some, some man-made mechanism of the past. It is you stepping out in all of your truest identity and all of your gifts and all of your passions to then glow in this dark world with the light of heaven. And so, Lord, I just break down any divide in just like pastor and laity. There's no such thing. We are all called together to be your ministers. So I pray that you just updraft our perspective and that it's not that heavy when we're yoked to you. <laughs> For my yoke is easy and my, my burden is light, says Jesus.